Welcome to yet another edition of Talk So Real with Matt Sonzala. I'm Matt Sonzala, and this is the podcast in which I talk to my friends. And uh, whew, it doesn't get much deeper than this one. I don't want to call him my old friend, my great friend. <laughs> He's not an old man, either am I. Fucking old. Man. But been down with him since, uh, say, 1991, my man, Wayne Donahue. What a surprise, people. What a surprise. Houston, can you imagine someone got Wayne on a podcast? Sure. That's a hard thing to do. <laughs> How many have you done? Uh, this is the third one, but... Third, okay. But I think the other two never actually... They didn't actually edit and finish them, so maybe it's a first. Oh, huh. <laughs> good. Well, we're not editing anything. <laughs> <laughs> it just goes... Like life, the way how we've uh, lived it for this many years. I met Wayne uh, when I went to a school. It's one of the worst decisions I ever made in my life. Turned out to be a great uh, decision for me in a sense. And I made some of my greatest friends in life, including Wayne. And uh, I don't know if I'm allowed to say the name of the school. I think you are. <laughs> I don't know if I'm allowed to say I was in part of that lawsuit. I mean, I, I know they've dissolved. They've since uh, closed all their campuses today or this week. But... Uh, yeah, it was a crazy situation because we went there for the music and video business course, and you were my uh, promotions teacher. At least that one class. I don't know. There may have been more classes, too. But I remember that one. Was that the name of it? I, yeah, and I think we had did maybe had a contract class, too, where we went yes. through contracts. Yeah. yeah, which that was probably one of the more meaningful classes there. Unless you were really technical and wanted to dive into the studio and do audio engineering and video stuff. It was a, for me, I've always been not the studio guy. Yeah. No. I like repetition in some things, but not in uh, my daily life, which would drive me crazy. But I do always do tell the story that my first audio engineering teacher there was Jeff Wells. And Jeff Wells had the sound arts recording studio. And one day he came up to me, because back then... It wasn't rap wasn't as big as it is now. Like rap music wasn't as big as it is as it became. And a lot of people don't understand that the hatred some people had for it back in those days now that's so universal and on every commercial and but he came up to me, he's like, Do you like rap? And I said, Yes. He's like he's like, You like rap, right? And I was like, Yeah, he does. I do. Do you wanna you wanna come down and uh, intern in my studio? I got this group, the ghetto boys coming to record. <laughs> I was like, what? That's awesome. <laughs> I was like, yes, I do. And it seemed like, I don't know how long it took for them to actually come in there and for this internship to start when they got, you know, but it seemed like forever. I was, it was the most exciting thing that ever came to my 18-year-old, you <laughs> know, 19-year-old self. And I got to be in the studio pretty much the whole time, emptying trash and cleaning up for uh, when they recorded We Can't Be Stopped, Mind Playing Tricks and all that. Wow. So I got that and Wayne Donahue <laughs> out of my secondary education. And from there, just you've always been a real important person in my life, man. You got a job as a teacher in a music video business, music and video business course thing because of your background, obviously, in the music business. When I met you, you were managing a band here in Houston called Beat Temple. That's right. Was that the only one? That's the only one. At yeah. the time? <clears throat> And we'll get into the before the, but tell me about Beat Temple because I feel like they were a precursor to a lot of things to come musically. Well, <clears throat> they were um, after I quit the uh, 
Christian record label. We're going to talk about that too. I, um, I, I decided I wanted to manage a band, one band. And so I spent a whole summer and I heard like 150 local bands. I went and found this little band called Western Eyes, four guys, a terrible drummer, but really talented singer and, you know, I was, and good writers. So I really was into it. Proposed that I manage them. They said, yes. I said, you got to change your name. They said, yes. We eventually came up with Beat Temple. They were a funk band that also had kind of a living color kind of edge to them. Mm-hmm. Really kind of serious guitar player. Uh, and we we did a lot of really good things. We got a lot of gigs around Texas, had a pretty serious following. We came in second in the nation in the big old Yamaha contest and went to L.A. and made a TV show with them. And uh, and eventually, God, I don't even... They just... The, the dream, I think, was a little bit too big, and everybody kind of just, you know, it eventually just kind of faded. But uh, they actually did a reunion a couple uh, last year, and they were they're still just completely badass in my mind. The song, everything about them was great and still is, really. But. Well, I felt like, in a sense, they were a cut above a lot of what was going on in the funk world of Texas because funk was not a small thing here. When you look at, you know, even Dallas, Austin, Houston, Sprawl, Bad Mother Goose, uh I was never a big fan of Billy Goat, but they were what they were, retarded elf or whatever, retarded elf right? and all that. But Beat Temple had more of a soulful sort of funk to them, I always felt like. And their shows were where those other guys were just fun and funky craziness, people stage diving. Like Beat Temple was more like serious right? to an extent, I think, and more so, and definitely soulful Della on the mic, oh. on the backing vocals, incredible. She was fantastic, yeah. And, and um, Tuesday playing drum, you know, he was, he's, you know, he went on and did a bunch of stuff with Outkast and, you know, has a, he's had a long career in Atlanta. But uh, he, it was interesting, he showed me more about somebody with the eye of the tiger, you know, because he was out of the hardcore ghetto and, Every time I went over to his apartment, he would be playing a master class on a video and, and learning. I mm-hmm. mean, I've never seen anybody as intense as he was. I was like, everybody needs to be like this guy if they want to get somewhere. Else. Man. Well, no, those were uh, really fun shows. And, and to think about how much has changed. Like my, I feel like I mostly saw them at Fitzgerald's. Yeah. Which I drove by the other day. You know, uh, thinking, just seeing that parking lot. It just, it, it still, I, I, I did the same thing. A week ago, I was by there, and I was like, that's such a, that's a goddamn shame right there. And it's not like it just happened either. It's just like, it's been there. It's been that blank space for I a know. minute, and it's just still just depressing. I know it. But, you know, I mean, it's how things, but the Axiom is still just standing there empty. <laughs> as far as I know, as of my last trip I, here. I, really? Last time I was here, I took <sighs> a picture of it just sitting there. That is wild. I, I thought it was bound to be gone. I With all that development. Yeah. And that place barely had a roof. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, it was a mess. Yeah, but, yeah, those days were pretty special. Now, you mentioned the Christian lady had before. I wanted to ask you about your beginnings in the music, in the music business, because I know for sure that you had your own band and you had the label. And I've actually heard your band sampled with, from a few artists <laughs> randomly. That's wild. Hydroponic sound system out of Dallas for sure. 
and I'm trying to think. I, I should have done, you know, I, I freestyle these. I didn't do all the right. I know the song, and I can hear it in my head, but I can't remember the exact oh my song. Gosh. I've played it for you before. And it was the same song sampled by two different producers. I remember hearing it in two different rap songs wow. in my life. What was the name of that band? Uh, Hope of Glory. And you were the keyboardist? Yeah, and the yeah. songwriter, mostly. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to find it okay. for you again. Okay, please do. <laughs> I will. That's pretty fun. I will. Uh what um? Tell me how you got into that though. Where did okay? Well, so when I was about sixteen, I dropped my first hit, of "Acid." What? And uh, you know, the next year, Jimi Hendrix came to town, and, and you know, it was just that time, you know. And and so from the time I was sixteen until the time I was twenty, I was basically a small-time acid and weed dealer. You know, once I once I started it, well, that's what I did, and so. At about 18, I started making trips to California and spending a lot of time out there in Los Angeles and running stuff back to Texas. And, mm-hmm. uh, and But the scene out there, in, like in 1969, uh, just, it was weird. It was like, uh, people talk about it, but after Altamont, it just became dark. I mean, it was just bizarre, you know, mm-hmm. people were started doing hard drugs, you know, the people around me, you know, I saw people shooting up with, in the necks and, you know, it was just like, and so I just got kind of freaked out and came home. And that was in LA. I was in LA. Yeah. Okay. And I came home and I went to my parents' house and, uh, and I was actually tripping and my mom said something about, you know, well, you need to, you know, get your life straight or whatever and come back to the Lord. I'd been raised uh, in a fun, you know, they were fundamentalist Christians, really sweet people. And so I said, yeah, you're right. So I, you know, came back to the Lord and almost immediately started a Christian band and then that's here in Houston. Here in Houston, but we traveled a lot. We, we did like 250 dates a year all over mm-hmm. the country all the time. And, uh, and did that for like a year and a half or two years and then got married, started a Christian record, started distributing other people's music to Christian bookstores. Like I started a distribution company for all that music out of California and then started a Christian record label and built a recording studio and... Uh, and signed Petra man, and, and, uh, then became, you know, did that for basically did that for 13 years. And then in 1986, you know, took a, took a long journey away from it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, that, and, and I, you know, I was totally sincere. This is not something that I was doing for the money or, uh, even though I'll, that all turned out, you know, pretty good. Uh, I, you know, I was, I was absolutely a, a sincere Christian, you know, believed we were in living in the end times, believed, you know, I, I was, I was, you know, a big, big proponent of the whole package. Uh, so, you know, at some point I wasn't sincere anymore. <laughs> that became, that became that, you know. I mean, that's crazy. It was like a biorhythm of your life. You went up to one level, you came down to another and back up and down. Yeah, I, I, you know, because I'm out of the world. We have a guest, Quam. 
Oh my gosh. Well, it's okay. That's the way it goes. Life has noise. We don't mind. I told him. God, I swore I'd never have any yappy dogs, and now I got fucking four. Four. We're here in the house, the dog house, the dog and bird house, and uh, whatever he's doing, driving the dogs crazy. All he's doing is showing up. <laughs> we got all of H-Town in the house here we're gonna... I told him come in The dog and Kwame uh, Entrance break It's over We're back And we were talking about The end of your time In the uh, With the Christian rock label That's right Was it Christian rock Or across the board musically Well the, the rock was what Made us the money We, we had You know Some more Contemporary Christian metal mm-hmm. artists, but or we really were kind of the, you know, the the rock label at that point. You know, and Petra was big. Well, we had a really good kind of metal band from Chicago called Resurrection Band. Okay, that were seriously good, <laughs> and and uh, and so you know we had that, and 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 again, yeah, Petra for that corporate rock, you know, big harmony thing. They they were. They were great, and they were filling giant places. I mean, you know, they were, you know, they were having concerts with you know eight, ten thousand people and shit. So it was a real, a real thing. Mm-hmm. And we had we had them for, I think, six albums, something like that. Jeez. You know, and 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 it was it was a very, it was a good thing. It, I mean, that that was the the heart of the label, you know, and any kind of real hit wise. Well, I mean, as a record collector who goes around to a lot of estate sales and people's houses looking through their records, it's from that era, a certain era, the 60s into the 70s and stuff, there's no shortage of people who collected all kinds of Christian records across the spectrum. Yeah, you find that a, in, that in oh classical, you find it more than anything. Wow. <laughs> of a certain generation, I suppose. Yeah, sure, sure. But, <clears throat> so you came out of that and you saw... Was it an epiphany like it was when you went into that world, went back into the Christian world? Did you have another like epiphany coming out? Well, uh, kind of, because it was kind of a all an all encompassing exit, you know. Because uh, I, it was it was my wife, it was my company, it was my you know my all my friends, so. It, you know, I, it, it wasn't that I had such an epiphany. You know, I came out of there, my, you know, my statements were basically, you know, I still love Jesus, but I don't love this, you know. Right. <laughs> and so, it, 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 and and then, of course, it became impossible for those people to believe that I could still love Jesus and explore all these other religions at the same time. That just seemed like totally apostate. So, so you know, I I became a, a student of uh, of sequ- kind of sequential re- religions just because that's what I wanted to do basically. And so I, you know, I I spent a bunch of time in in Buddhism. I spent a bunch of and and I just would read text and do little practices that they talked about in the books. And you know, I never had a guru or anything like that. And it just became fun for me to kind of take on a pseudo identity of of that stuff and basically I told people you know I'm taking this stuff seriously but I don't expect anybody to take me seriously 
mm-hmm. you know, so, you know, cause I know that I'm still a rube, but for my money, this is what I want to spend some time learning about, you know? And so, so then it became the whole fake guru persona that I began to throw parties and, you know, I had, you know, but all of that was really just having fun, you know, sure. with, with, but at the same time, at, just like with the Christian stuff, I was utterly sincere in, in my learning process. I wasn't ever, uh, you know, just a cynic. Well, I mean, I think Christianity can make you pretty cynical in the sense that if you're especially going and studying all these other religions, that's the problem with the religions. Because you, when you go to these older ones, you get a much deeper understanding of spirituality, whereas it's some of the more modern religions where they tell you this is the way, this is it, the one way, that's all. Yeah, I think I think that's the real, the real cutoff for me. Any religion that says it's the only one is not the only one. You know, I mean, that's just insane. You know, that's like crazy talk. So it's like... You know, and, and so ultimately, I, you know, I basically I embraced the only label I could give myself was as a Taoist because there's no real deity. There's no real and it, and it has a female perspective like it's it's a it's basically the female is elevated, you know. Uh, and so, you know, if if I ha- if it had to come down to it and call myself something, it would be that, you know, but but. The funny thing about the Tao is the Tao says that once you name it, you've lost it. Hmm. You know, that the very first verse of the Tao is the Tao that can be named is not the Tao. So this whole fascination with names and, and structures and all, you know, all of that is just kind of nonsense when you embrace that idea is like, no, you're trying to nail it. Once you start nailing it down, you've lost it. So just, you know, accept and go, you know, but don't, try to get all into like, what are you going to call it? And where are you going to go? And what you, you know, it's like, yeah, exactly. So, uh, you know, that, that became a real kind of, kind of guiding point for me. You know, it's like, I, I'm into the thing, whatever it is, but I'm not going to try to pin it down. Cause that's, you know, that's nonsense. I always say, I just don't know, you know, I, I know what I feel, yeah. I believe, but I don't, I can't tell you what's right or wrong. If you're wrong, I'm right. I don't no, know. That, that, don't no, and no one does. People to say that they do, you know, are desperate to know, but they don't. You know, so they, no. a lot of people have to have certainty in their lives in order to feel good. So, and yeah, I think that's where we connect in a sense. We've never been certain of anything. No, <laughs> <laughs> no certainty. I don't is, know what's happening. No, it's 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 a being born a human is already just whack in, in so many weird ways. The fact that we can even talk about it is already, you know. Kind of nutty. Should have been birds. <laughs> you know. I do like birds. I want to fly. Yeah, It'd be so much easier. <laughs> but when you did start out on that path, though, I mean, you live in Houston. You were in Houston at the time, right? Yes. In the city? Yeah. Um, no, in the suburbs. Okay. How do you find that? Did you have to find a community to jump into that, or was that just something you decided through just reading or curiosities? Uh, no, it, it just, I've always been a, a ridiculous reader. I mean, essentially, the bulk of my life has been hiding out from people and reading. Hmm. And then I fully embrace people when I'm out. I'm super gregarious, but I've spent most of my time of my life just immersed in books because I just, I, once I got onto books when I was a kid, I just I never stopped. Hmm. And And because I was from you know, just basically a little blue collar part of Houston 
and you know books were the you know the the mental way out mm-hmm. I didn't, we didn't even have a television in our house until i was 13 mm. so it's always been books you know and <clears throat> so i never i just read and read and read and read and read and and, and that was it you know and so that it's <laughs> Uh, I, and I guess that's why I never had a guru or anything because I just I picked and choose, you know, picked and, picked and choose. Yeah. Well, I think people of a certain age, myself, and generations look back <clears throat> at the generations before us and think maybe, well, you know, my grandparents were certainly more conservative than I am or those times were more conservative or what we saw on TV seemed like Leave it to Beaver Land and all that. But now I look at... um the book banning happening in Texas and other places, but especially in Texas right now, can you compare what you see in that in 2023 to what, you know, there were some crazy books and I'm sure crossed your path. Yeah. Cause you know, when I was in the, when I was in the sixth grade, uh, I, there was a little used bookstore you know, I could ride my bicycle to. And I went there and got like six books a week and would, she would let you trade them back in for half. And so in any event, uh, like I got Clockwork Orange in the sixth grade. Man. And I, and of course I had no real, I read Ayn Rand in the sixth grade. You know I mean? And then, you know, this was like, and I had no, no context of, you know, to me, I read Ayn Rand just like a book. I didn't take any philosophy out of it really, you know, uh, but, uh, I mean, I read the Gulag Archipelago in the sixth grade. <laughs> it was a big year for me, but, uh, you know, so I, you know, of course I'm, I'm a completely against, you know, any sort of thing like that. And I think most thinking people are, but, uh, it's, it's terrifying what these people want for us. You know, it's like, it's, it's, it's terrifying. It's, it's, it's just you know, fascism 101, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, let's go after the intellectuals, let's go after anybody that's, you know, experts, and, uh, you know, and whip everybody into a frenzy over it, so it's, it's nuts. I mean, were there people telling you back then, oh, put that book down? No. No. No, there was none of that. Well, nobody was paying attention to that. You know, there wasn't that idea that we had to protect kids from certain things, and, I mean... Yeah, first of all, they were protected because nobody was talking about any of it, hardly. Right. You know, so there wasn't, you know, there, you didn't have, there wasn't any thought of, you know, a book in the library about two moms, you know, or two dads, you know. There was that was just slightly not even in the context of the discussion. You know, so, right. I mean, as a young person, I did the same thing. I've dug into all the books, and my most of those books came right off my parents' shelves, which I was fortunate in that my yeah. mother bought all those type books. I did not read Anne Rand as a youth, but those <laughs> books were on my, my Atlas Shrugged was definitely on the bookshelf of yeah, my, sure. my mother's house. And uh, <clears throat> I remember reading Last Texas to Brooklyn as like a probably around when I met you or a little younger, 16, I mean, I met you like 19, maybe 17 or 18, and I was reading this book, and there was transsexual prostitutes, there was all kinds of just like debauchery on this Navy pier, all these things in this book that were just like, damn. And I remember when I looked at the, the year it was written in the 1950s, and I thought to myself, damn, 
This is I thought this was like today, like crazy, uh -huh. crazy ass eighties or seventies, eighties or something. This was in the fifties. I thought the Leave It to Beaver was the fifties. You know, yeah, I thought all yeah. the stuff from TV, well, the TV moms and dads. Well, but the fifties, the, the beach were also the fifties. Right, right. You know, I mean, so that's true. So you know, it it it, it was like for me, you know, they were just just ahead of me, you know, mm -hmm. and so when I was sixteen, you know, I was reading that stuff and tripping you know and right. so i you know it it basically changed me forever you know i mean it's like i i became alternative i mean there was no choice after that you know mm -hmm. and so all those books you know all the beat stuff all, all of that stuff just became you know like the, it just became part of the currency and then when i <laughs> and what was really funny was then when i became you know came back you know, the, like the summer that I was looking for a band to manage, you know, I would get in every night, like at one thirty or two in the morning, three, and I would read Bukowski to, to sleep, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and I read everything Bukowski wrote, you know, in that summer, you yeah. know, so I just would dive into people and, and, and it became, you know, that it became, you know, becomes part of you. But uh, the books are, it's weird because I don't read books anymore. You know? What? No, I'm a, just a total whore on Facebook and I don't, <laughs> I, I don't, you know, I, See? I, I read, I, I mean, I read books, mm -hmm. but, but I read, I don't read very many, you know, I well, Facebook have, and things like that make it harder to read books. It oh, take, does no, mess with your attention span. No, it's and, totally fucked me up. No, I'm, I'm not, yeah. I'm not proud of it, I'm, but I'm also completely in it. You know, uh, I have, uh, you know, Lucy still works a massive job. And last year she read 150 books. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I, cause she's reading all the time, you know, like she's got a book with her all the time, usually on her phone, but, but I can't, I can't do it anymore. I, I read a little bit. Uh, I read the occasional book. I have two or three books that I'm kind of working through that are kind of, you know, like kind of serious and hard. Uh, but it's it's no it's a sad thing for somebody like me who's always been a reader but basically for the last five or six years i, I i've just been you know i became so incensed after trump got elected that i just became a complete maniac you know <laughs> and and it was just like i all you know i was like the king of trump hate memes that's you know it's just and i know it doesn't mean anything doesn't do anybody any good but it you know kind of feels good to express it but um I want to say for the record, Wayne did not become a maniac until 2016. <laughs> yeah, before that, I was completely normal. Yeah, real chill. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, with it, it's the, the the social media thing has been kind of interesting. How uh, kind of how stupid and also how cool it is. I've met probably 50 people that I've actually met in person that I met first on social media. They're real fucking cool, you know, and then I wouldn't know another way. And so, you know, it's, it's okay, but God, it's, it's also, it's, it's not, it's not good for your intellectual development like reading books is. Right, know? right. There's not, there's not, a, it's a, that's an unfair, you know, it's, it's, it shouldn't have displaced as much as it has. Well, I agree. I'd like to compare and contrast that with uh, the music community. And social media and what the and the difference between when you were going out in Houston and when I started going out in late, you know, when I was coming to Houston in the summers, I moved here in 89. So let's say the late 80s going out and seeing bands and trying to 
you know, be a part of the scene. And at this point in time, this many years later, still wanting that, wanting to be a part of that, trying to hear the music, trying to get out there. Can you say it? Tell me, did you see a big difference between the action now and the action then? I don't know because I don't participate enough. You do still, though. You but still I go mean, see I, bands. You're oh, still I go out see there. bands, you know, but, uh, but uh, you know, I'm finding in my old age that, like, you know, essentially, you know, I've kind of come, you know, I'm, I'm into, like, you know, roots music and Zydeco and funk and, you know, I'm, I'm and I'm not as much into, you know, new original music in the sense. I'm, I'm into original music in those genres, you know, but... Uh, I don't, I don't have, you know, like current pop music, just, it, it, there's just nothing there for me, you know, however, I have got really, uh, are you familiar with like this, uh, uh, I really like, I figured out I really like French pop music, like, uh, uh, are, are you familiar with Parcels? No. Actually, I just saw a poster or an advertisement for them, but I don't. Yeah, know. Uh, I've been into them for a few years now. But they're 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 a band from Australia that moved to Berlin, and you know did the whole starving band thing in Berlin, and then they actually got signed by by uh, a, a French label, the the, the French label for uh, Daft Punk. Okay, and. Uh, uh, this is kind of funny because you know I listen. My favorite default radio station is is FIP. It's a French government station that plays mostly English music, but also with some really cool uh, you know French crooners and shit like. And it could be it could be fifties TV music and Led Zeppelin. I mean, you just never know what it, it's you know it's really random programming, but super cool. I love it. And anyway, I heard them one day. You know, and I shazam things all the time off of there. And I heard them one day on this station, and just as a side note, I'm like a major Nile Rodgers fan. Okay. All right? And Nile Rodgers, to me, is like the funkiest rhythm guitar player that's ever lived. You know, It's mm-hmm. like you, you hear him on a thousand hits that you don't even know that's what you're hearing, but once you hear it, your head starts bopping, and you're like, you know, you're into it. And so I've, I've, I've learned to know it, what, you know, to just recognize him. So I'm listening to this band, I'm like, it's fucking Nile Rodgers playing guitar, and it's got to be. And I look it up, and it's not. You know, and I'm okay. like, well, that's really weird, you know, because it sure does sound like him, you know. So, and then I watched, like, a live video of these guys, and they're all playing their shit, you know, and I'm like, okay. You know, but, I mean, that guy loves Nile Rodgers more than anybody. That's clear. So I dig a little deeper, and it turns out that, you know, Nile Rodgers played all of the Daft Punk stuff, mm-hmm. you know. And so it turns out that Nile Rodgers like co-produce this band, you know, okay. so it probably is him, you know, but, but, yeah. but, but I just, and so I'm, and they're like a close harmony, you know, French pop band, basically that, that are from Australia and sing in English, you know, I mean, that's how they're produced. And it's just, to me, it's like, you know, the, some of the greatest stuff in the last three or four years. So I still get excited about <clears throat> a few new bands, but sure, it's, I, I there's, like I like this local band, the Wheel Workers. Do you know them? Yeah, yeah, I, I like them, but I just nothing is just knocking me out, you know. Except for my my reggae band, Dim Roots. I mean, it's hard to you know really follow Crash Worship. I know it is not easy <laughs> to follow Crash Worship in in life. In your living room. <clears throat> in your living room. Your living room. Right. 
I though my question was more about like in Erie, Pennsylvania, where I'm from. That used to be a really rock and roll city. And it was like, and I hear like, <clears throat> I listen to these podcasts of people older than me talking about their days and this. And I think about when I would go home and the main street there had six bars yeah. that had live music. And Houston, you could really hop around to a bunch of different stuff. Even if you were into punk, even there were a few things going on. If you're into, you know, yeah. all different kinds of music. And I feel like, I guess it's post-COVID because that's what everybody says. I think a lot of bar times and stuff changed with COVID, but I really feel like the social media and the, the gaming and the availability of everything you want ever in life to watch on TV at your fingertips. I, I, absolutely. No, I, I, you, that, it's the same thing is happening in every city. You know, yeah. the, the, the idea that you can start a band in your garage and then start playing you know, at your local clubs and kind of get a, you know, gather a following, you know, it just, it's, it exists in kind of a skeletal form, but it's, there's, it's, it, there's nowhere near the amount of people participating that there was, mm -hmm. you know, it's like, cause you know, it's like everybody you knew was in a band that, you know, that there was just tons of bands that are trying to do something, you know, yep. and, and there were enough people going to enough places to keep those places open. Mm-hmm. Every single live music, small bar, club type place in Houston is either subsidized, like the Big Easy, you know, that, that landlord subsidizes that place. Okay. It wouldn't exist, you know, especially not on Kirby. Uh, you know, the, they are just barely on the edge of making, of existing, and like every year or two having to have a GoFundMe to try to, you know, keep the doors open. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's, I mean, there's glimmers of hope, you know, there, there's, there's this little club in spring branch. Have you been over there? 1810 OG, OG, I have not been there. Uh, you know, it's got a nice little stage. The, they have a real wide range of random live music. They have good. a really good jazz thing on Thursday nights with a bunch of HSPVA kids. I mean, you know, it's a real legit little live music bar and they seem to do pretty well. So, you know, you know, it's maybe, you know, but, you know, I mean, we're in the Houston of, you know, 5 million people, you know, there should be, there should be a little area, you know, I mean, but, you know, 6th Street in Austin, what's that? Oh, it's a hellscape. Yeah. At the moment, at right. this time, yeah, I mean, but there's still pockets in uh, E6. I mean, 6th Street, I mean, Austin's still a legitimate music city. I mean, you know, you can bust out of there and go worldwide and, you know, it's, 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 the, the Houston has never been that, so but it used to be better than it is. <laughs> so, I mean, rap wise, it was for a while and different things, but and Austin is also just a live place. You still have to get out of there and tour and, and get out of this, your uh, little confines or whatever. But I really hope to see the more real life in person things come back even harder. My daughter, who's eighteen, she's at all ages shows and house shows and parties like that all the time, mm -hmm. <clears throat> and is up on things, but. Even she says it's sometimes hard to get her friends to care. Yeah. Well, they've been now, you know, so many of these kids, you know, their experience of going out and partying does not ever involve live music unless it's a big show. Mm -hmm. and, and, uh, and otherwise, it's a disc, it's a DJ. Right. You know, and of course, the venue can have a DJ for, you know, two or three hundred bucks. And, and, you know, and it's just, uh, 
I don't know. You know, I mean, because yeah, it's, it's interesting because the big shows draw more people than ever and are more expensive than ever. No, it's a big difference because when we were young, it was five bucks for under 21 and free for over 21 to right. see all the best bands ever in the world at Emo's. Right. You know, like that of that era. Right. Yeah. You know, if you went to Rudyard's, it was five bucks. Or oh, I know. To, I mean, know, you know, I saw... I saw Led Zeppelin in the music hall for 10 bucks. You know, it's yeah. like, it's like, you know, I mean, that, so the whole idea that a normal, you know, teenage kid can go out and hear a really good band mm-hmm. for any kind of reasonable amount of money, that part, you know, as I say, it still exists at a few little bars, you know, that, that, but we'll take the chance. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that they're, they're owned by people that are actually into it. You know, that's the only way it makes any sense. Otherwise, they they turn they should turn it into a place with a DJ or 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 just turn it back into a bar, because by the time you pay a band, there has to be something coming in the door, or the alcohol sales have to be serious, you know. Mm-hmm. And no band wants to even get in their fucking car for less than a hundred dollars a person, you know, or fifty dollars a person if they're really, you know, willing to put themselves out there. So it's like you know a few hundred bucks uh, in a night is all the difference in a lot of these little bars in, in existing or not. So unless the band has packed people in there, then it doesn't make any sense anymore. You know, it's like, it never did really, but it, but there was more people that were just willing to go out and just hear whatever band was coming that night. Mm-hmm. It's like, uh, and that, the other flip side of the coin is you can start a band in your bedroom and make a pretty damn good record in your bedroom and get people all over the world listening to it without ever leaving your bedroom you know i mean it's like you know there's a whole there's whole other universes of avenues of being able to sling your thing you know if you're if you're a musician then but there's also you know what like you know six thousand songs a day being added to spotify or sixty thousand some insane number you know Mm -hmm. it's like and there's no such thing as you know, I, I hear people talking about making an album, and I, I still do it. I mean, people still do it all the time, but it's a, it, it doesn't even really exist as a format anymore. You know, you make a song, mm-hmm. you know, and the song goes in. If it's you're lucky, it gets on some playlist, but there's no such thing as like, you know, somebody's going to go buy an album and listen to the whole damn album. That just is so rare that, you know, it's like it's not albums anymore, it's songs. That's it. You know, it's like it's yeah. Well, a lot of those, most of those playlists are pay to play and bought and sold for one, and so it's not just luck, and it's also having people behind the curtain still in this sure, new music, always. <clears throat> new music landscape. But uh, the attention span of you know, I didn't grow up listening to songs for fifteen seconds. You know, like that wasn't even we had albums and tapes. Right, sure, you know, and uh-huh. we waited and, and cared and. I often think about that. Like, what if I had access to every record in the world in my pocket when I was out there searching for records as a teenager? It'd be a whole different, totally different thing. I can't, uh, can't oh, even imagine. I, mean, I, I, I can't live without Spotify. Yeah. I mean, Spotify feeds me cool shit every day. You know, hmm. I mean, I have, I have, uh, you know, I mean, I, it's, it's, I've had it long enough now to where it totally knows what I'm into. You know, and it's going to send me some, you know, some chill shit and it's going to send me some reggae and it's going to send me some funk and it's going to send, and it's not new and all new stuff. I mean, you know, it, it goes back and pulls catalog and shit and I, and, and I do listen, I constantly listen to stuff for 15 seconds now. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm like, I, you know, I know next, 
And I, you know, I, I didn't know what that song was, and I don't know what the next one is either. But I, you know, so I'm just feeding myself new shit all the time now, for nothing. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's just a completely different way of of experiencing music, which is not, again, it's kind of like the books thing. It's not as good, really. It's not. No, I mean, it's much better to really actually experience an artist and listening to a whole album and and being, you know, kind of just listening feeling the analog vibrations Uh, yeah i mean yeah i don't who listens anymore you know you're not i'm not really listening well i have the opposite experience with spotify to an extent like i'll put on i'll listen to an album and i'll just get so mad when that album's over and they put on their their random song i'll be like (laughs) why no stop (laughs) stop it this is nothing that's great not okay (laughs) get me the phone as fast as Uh, possible hit the button stop uh, it that is so funny that is great no, yeah, it drives me crazy, man. <clears throat> I do have to find that song, though, for you that you were sampled on. I definitely do. I think Bubba has a copy of the album, your album, The Hope of Glory, The Glorious Life of Wayne Donahue. Here comes that book. Yeah, sure. I'm waiting on that one. It'll be way bigger than a podcast. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Well, man, I definitely appreciate you and your time and, and this life that uh, I've spent knowing you. For sure, and your family. I mean, Matt, Ryan, Joseph, Lucy, and all the the uh, planets who have orbited around you for all these years that we've experienced has always been a big part of my life, for sure. That time, outside of the school more than in the school. Oh, absolutely. No, <laughs> no, no. You're Matt Sonsala. Was a big uh, part of uh, everything in my formation and stuff. It was a lot of... Uh, Good times, crazy times, fun times, and it always came right back to here. Came back to the table. You know, it could be years, but it's just still, uh, it's always there. It has been years. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> COVID and whatever else, life. All of it. Yeah, for sure. Well, man, thank you so much. I appreciate you as always. And, uh, if you have anything else you want to give anybody, give people your address. You know, I know you just let people walk right in your door and things. Come on, you know, <laughs> come on, <laughs> come down. <laughs> honeycomb Hideaway, Southside. He's a Southsider again. Back to Southeast. Southeast. Yeah, you got me. No, I'll tell you this: it's a nice thing to come out here to the southeast side of Houston because it is too easy to come see your friends in the center of the city and forget how much more there is to offer in Houston. This place is a treasure. Houston is a treasure. It's crazy. But uh, keep it a secret. Don't Let's not let it get ruined. Oh, yeah. Completely. We've seen that happen before. Yeah. All right, man. Thank All right. you. Thank you so much. And uh, thank you to everybody out there listening. As I always say, tell a friend to tell a friend to find Talk So Real with Matt Sunzel on your favorite platform. Like, subscribe, do whatever you people do with your podcasts. <laughs>